Hello and welcome to A's for Apple, an encyclopedia of food and drink that takes a deep dive into food and drink culture letter by letter. It's written and presented by me, Neil Buttery, Sam Bilton and Alessandra Pino. We're all food writers and we're interested in food and food history. We've got our own specialisms within that area, whether that be literature, food traditions, etc. But it's not just a food history podcast. We can go in any direction we want and we get to look at food and drink from many, many angles. I was a scientist, so I'd quite like to look at the science of cooking and maybe the biology of those consuming it. British food history is my MO, but I eat and cook food from all around the world, so it'd be nice to talk about other things other than Britain. How about you, Sam and Ali? Yeah, I write about very specialist subjects, it turns out. I've written two books, one on gingerbread and one on saffron, so this is right up my street looking at things in depth. I'm Ali, and I have a PhD in food and cultural memory. I worked 10 years for a Michelin-starred restaurant in central London, so I got to see how food arrived to the kitchen Mm. and how it landed on people's plates. So I'm really interested in the dark side of food and what goes on behind the scenes of food production. So this podcast is an encyclopedia, and with each season, we're going to take one letter to work from. We're going in order, so season one will be the letter A, We can go obvious, we can go niche, and we can interpret our brief in any way we like. We're going to be taking it in turns to be in charge of an episode. I've drawn the short straw for episode one. We're all going to present something about our chosen word. It might be a short lecture, maybe a cooking spot, an interview, whatever, and then we'll have a chat about it. Then I will hand the baton on to Sam or Alessandra, and they will give us the subject that we've got to work within for next time, whatever that may be herbs and spices, fruit, baking, anything that they choose. I've been very kind and I've given us a free choice for this first episode. But of course, we want to hear from you. Have you got any comments to make? When we presented our little cookery spot or lecture or whatever, do you think that we missed out something very, very important? Also, one of the episodes of the season is going to be made up of listeners' suggestions. If you want to contact us or follow us on social media, have a look at the link tree link in our show notes. So let's get going. Now, I wonder if you were to think of the subject, the letter A, for a food and drink podcast, what would be the first thing that pops into your mind? What's the really obvious one? I think we're all probably thinking of the same thing. Every primary school poster of the alphabet has an apple to represent the letter A. Would we be that obvious? Alessandra, what do you have for us? I've got apple. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Of course you have. (laughs) But it's not as obvious as it seems because apples are quite tricky things, aren't they? Even if we start from the Bible, was it an apple or was it something else? And I think therein lies the mystery, you see, because I'm always attracted to the darker side of food and investigating what lies beneath. So apple, yes but not as straightforward as it seems. We could probably do a whole podcast on the subject of apples. It's a huge subject. It's a very important foodstuff. It really is. And it is a humble fruit, but it also is a fruit that's often portrayed in very grand paintings and in mythology. So it does have, I would say, also a more regal aspect if we we want to define it like that. So, Alessandra, what have you... Um, got for us today? Have you prepared anything? I've got something on apples and mystery, apples Mm -hmm. and the supernatural and the ghostly, and how often they represent 
The Souls of the Departed. Excellent. A is for apple. Apples are known for being beneficial to our health. The aphorism an apple a day keeps a doctor away originated in Wales, first appearing in a publication in 1866 in a different rhyming format. Eat an apple on going to bed and you'll keep the doctor from earning his bread. But do apples have a dark side? Technically, this healthy fruit has a poisonous element literally at its core. The seeds of an apple contain the fatal poison cyanide. A study reveals that you need to chew approximately 200 seeds in order for that to affect you. The Old Testament tells of Adam and Eve, who lived in paradise in total innocence until the serpent enticed them to eat the forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge. As punishment for their disobedience, God banished them from paradise. But what must they have tasted? We'll never know, also because it isn't certain that the fruit they took a bite of was even an apple to begin with, and perhaps this sense of uncertainty and deception and mystery has lingered on and filtered down to some well-known author's literary works in which apples are seen as an omen that something from beyond our world is about to make an entrance. In The Apple Tree by Daphne du Maurier, published in 1952, a recently widowed man feels a sense of relief now his wife is no longer alive. Some passages of this story highlight the contradictory nature of the husband versus the wife's perspective, paralleled by the good versus evil, that the apple symbolically contains. His relationship with his deceased wife has been fraught with guilt and the inability to communicate, and that has led to deception. So what better fruit to make a mark on this man's fate? The wife's death comes as more of a relief than a loss, and suddenly he's enjoying life again, until one day he looks out of his window and sees that one of his apple trees bears an uncanny resemblance to the hunched, drudging image of his late wife. In A Halloween Party by Agatha Christie, published in 1969, we have Joyce, a 13-year-old child who boasts that she once witnessed a murder, and within hours her body is found, still in the house, drowned in an apple-bobbing tub. That night, Hercule Poirot is called in to find the evil presence. Let's listen to a short clip starring John Moffat as Hercule Poirot with Stephanie Cole as Ariadne Oliver. I'm in situation, oh. uh, May I get you something to drink, a little cognac? I don't drink. Surely you haven't forgotten. No, I've not forgotten, but I thought it might do you good. No, no, I don't want anything, really. Then calm yourself. And tell me what it is that has upset you. Well, it all began with a party, a Halloween party. Do you know what that is? I know what Halloween is. The last night in October, when the witches ride on their broomsticks. There was a witch. She was called Mrs. Goodbody, but I don't remember a broomstick. It all started with the apples. Apples? Bobbing for apples. It's one of the things you do at a Halloween party. Ah, yes, I think I have heard of that. The party ended with a snapdragon. Snapdragon? You, you know, burning raisins in a dish. I suppose that must have been when it happened. When what happened? The murder. So not just apples bobbing in that tub, but also a head. In The July Ghost, written by A.S. Byatt, published in 1982, a young man sits in a large walled garden in South London. A little boy sits in an apple tree above him, and sometimes he can see him swinging agile on an apple branch. But something is not quite right. 
Let's listen to a clip dramatised by Eric Pringle with Kate Buffery as Imogen and Clive Owen as the man. So I took to sitting in the garden. It was a lovely place. Huge, hidden, walled, with old fruit trees at the end, a disorderly buddlier, curving beds of old roses, a lawn run to hay, a little path ran under the apple trees. Hello, where did you spring from? Are you wanting your ball? I, I didn't see one come over. Mind you, I didn't see you come over either. The boy was sitting at a fork of the tree nearest the gate, doing something to a knot in a rope attached to the branch. He wore blue jeans and training shoes and a brilliant striped T-shirt. Blonde hair fell over his eyes and obscured his face. Are you looking for a ball? Um, I'm talking to you. Now, talking of things not being quite right, in The Woman in Black by Susan Hill, published in 1983, Arthur Kipps is a young solicitor with everything, as Hill tells us, in apple pie order. But slowly, as he uncovers the frightening secrets of Eel Marsh House, he will most likely fondly remember the apple and raisin tart, his mouth watering in anticipation of that comforting dessert had before the occurrence of some rather tragic events. So next time you have an apple, you might want to turn around just to make sure nothing suspicious is lurking behind you. I had no idea that apples could have this evil aspect. I mean, I know I remember doing apple bobbing as a kid uh, at Halloween. Why is there this association with sort of the good evil Halloween, I don't know, witchcraft? I mean, are they? I know about the Wicked Witch, obviously, in Snow White. But why does the poor old apple get labelled well, lumbered with all these evil connotations? I love that idea that you can take an apple, look at it, and it looks innocent. But really, we don't know all the darkness that it holds within. Even, as we heard from the clip, the fact that it can contain poison within its seeds is something incredible. Now, in forms of witchcraft and traditions that are magical, apples have always been considered a symbol of knowledge and wisdom and transformation. So you get these spells that are to do with divination and healing and fertility. So in this context, apples often represent this potential for magical power and this connection to the spiritual realm. Now, they have been often used for divination practices, including those associated with witchcraft, which is what I'm really interested in. There are some spells in which, for example, you could peel an apple in one long strip, throw it over your shoulder if you were that way inclined, and then the shape that you got on the ground behind you was believed to reveal the initials of the future lover or future husband or wife, etc. So, and, and this form of divination was associated to Halloween and love magic. So often you get this kind of, Yes, it's an apple and it's good for you and it's innocent and it's wholesome, but also we can use it for witchcraft and, and, and darker practices. It's linked with fertility because of um, the fact that it's, it is so easy to grow in, in this country, that you get such big crops. So that's why it's been paralleled with, with fertility or something. Definitely. Hmm. And also there are some healing properties within the apple. So I think anything like that, you'll often find it that it is beneficial to your health. And that goes hand in hand with obviously being fertile and procreation. Um, in certain cultures, the apple seems to have like a cooling or cold 
effect. And so that can, depending on the type of body that you have, could upset the balance. So it has healing properties, but it also can can be harmful for some people. So it's there's always that kind of what 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 is it really? And and I love that. And I love the fact that, as I said in the Bible, you get this depiction of the apple in later portraits and later pictures, but in the scriptures themselves, there's just reference to a fruit with seeds, and that's it. And it could be it could be a pear. It's got to be, it's got to be a pomegranate, hasn't it? It's the sexiest of the fruits. Well, I'm wondering about the leaf, Neil, because like if you take a fig and then you use a leaf to cover your private parts, that makes sense. But would you be able to do that with the leaf of an apple in the same way? That's why I thought. I'm not gonna, I won't admit. We, need, we need to try. <laughs> Hang on. Let me just get a. I'm joking. Try with the pineapple. Pineapple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that could be quite painful. I just want, I wanted to show you something. Oh yeah. Um, I wanted to show you just on the witchcraft one. Are you doing that? I was about to say, have you tried it before? No, because I was. I was good. Because you know, you get um, these witchcraft spells and like protection spells, and you use the seeds from the apple, but you've got to cut the apple lengthwise, like from the width of the apple, not the length. Mm. So oh, if okay. you cut it, you get like the five pointed star here, the pentagram. This is. Oh like- yeah. Oh yeah, very witchy. If you have an altar in your houses, which I don't know if you do, but you could put it on your altar and express right. your deepest, darkest desire, and it might it might come true. It's cyanide in those apples, isn't it? That's the, there the is. You need about two hundred pips for that to have any effects in you, but we're not going to try that. We'll probably. I <laughs> said <laughs> that's a bit of a stage two, a step too far, really, isn't it, for uh, recipe testing? Yeah. Well, there was one guy who read this is a few years ago. I can't remember it. It was it was an English man because we're idiots. Um, he said that he'd read that um, cherry. That if you crack a cherry stone open, there's cyanide in it and it's poisonous. Mm. So he cracked some cherry stones open and ate them to prove whatever he read the article wrong, and then got sent to hospital. <laughs> <laughs> and then he was trying to start up a campaign to ban the sale the sale of cherries in supermarkets. It's like, come on, this is natural selection at work here. We don't want to be yeah. depressed. <laughs> we don't want those genes knocking around in the no, population. No, no, I mean, no. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely not. Talk about witchcraft, actually, um, and poisoned apples. Alan Turing, the great mathematician, mm-hmm. Second World War and all that, he sadly took his own life with a poisoned apple. Did you know that? No. No. Mm, he injected uh, an apple with cyanide and then ate the apple. Is that why the apple? That's where the Apple Mac computer comes from. It's where they say the, the Apple logo. Mac, where the logo yeah. comes from. And yeah. if you go to Sackville Park in Manchester, it's just adjacent, or well, it's part of the gay village in Manchester, because Alan Turing's gay. There's a sculpture of him sat on a bench and he's holding an apple with a oh right i haven't seen that i do know that microsoft apple have banned any depiction in films or literature of any kind where an apple where an apple mac computer is being used by an evil character (laughs) is that true wow i did not know that that is so you'll never see in a film a baddie on a mac guess he's an android is he yes (laughs) (laughs) Here's also a sad fact. Do you know? Well, you won't know. 
the person who created that sculpture of Alan Turing was um, Glyn Hughes, the food historian. No way. Yeah, who sadly took his own life last year. No. So it's a a very strange thing. I I didn't know that. Um, I was researching an article you know, about him, and I was yeah. just, you know, Googling him, and I just couldn't believe it. I didn't know he was a sculptor. Well, he's done everything. But, yeah, he sculpted that um, oh, wow. thing, and it gave me a, a bit of a shiver down the spine because I've walked past that statue, you know, scores of times because it's in the centre of Manchester. Wow. Yeah. Why were raw apples thought to be bad for you? Because when you look in um, old recipe manuscripts, say, form of curry, that's the one that we all know, I guess it stands to reason you're not going to have a recipe for a raw apple, but there's a lot of cooked apple recipes in there and cooked pears as well, cooked wardens. But why were raw apples and raw fruit in general thought to be bad for you? It was believed that they were very difficult to digest and that raw apples could lead to digestive problems or discomfort. And it was just easier to eat and to to digest them if they were cooked. And that was the case with most fruits. I think there was a lot of suspicion towards fruit. I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't a bit of a classist thing as well, because I bet poor people ate fruits straight from the tree. It's one of the reasons why they didn't like having vegetables, isn't it? Because that was considered uh, what peasants ate. Yeah, I mean, I always always compare it to smoking. You know, we all know that uh, smoking is bad for us, and yet plenty of people still smoke. So even though people were told that raw fruit was bad for them, you can't tell me people weren't eating raw berries and raw apples. No, it does seem weird, doesn't it? It does seem weird. It is mentioned, I can't remember the places where I read it off the top of my head, but people were definitely feared yes. of um, raw well, raw vegetables as well. I mean, the only things that were let through with the odd salad. Because now you've got pesticides and it makes sense that you wouldn't eat something directly that's been sprayed on, but then... At the time, they wouldn't have had that, so... No. Mm. It is a weird one, isn't it? I mean, certainly they eat more vegetables when you get into the sort of the early modern era. I mean, people think people weren't eating any vegetables during Tudor times and things. They definitely were. But, yeah, in medieval times, they really got a bee in their bonnet, didn't they, about anything raw? Mm. Yeah. So in terms of alcohol, which conveniently starts with A, although that would be a huge episode or indeed an entire series to cover alcohol. But in terms of alcohol and the evil kinds, having discussed evil apples, I think absinthe has probably got to have the worst rep after perhaps moonshine and dodgy gin in terms of the it's, well, it's very negatively viewed, I feel. I don't think most, you know, it's, I know it's sort of come back into vogue in recent years. But Neil, you've got, you've done some research into absinthe and perhaps you can just tell us whether these myths are founded or not. I've got really interested in cocktails and cocktail making recently. So I bought some absinthe and thought it was absolutely delicious. So I'm going to try and rehabilitate it for us. What do you already know, or think you already know, about absinthe? There's probably certain images conjured up in your mind when you think about it. Maybe the Moulin Rouge, Toulouse-Lautrec, Ernest Hemingway knocking it back. Or maybe sugar cubes being dripped on (laughs) by the bright green liquid to make the sweet, sweet drink. Well, let's start with the basics. It's a green spirit, not a liqueur. There's no sugar added to it. It tastes 
quite sweet, oddly enough, because of the aniseed, and that's kind of a natural sweetening effect. Licorice does the same thing too. It contains extracts of two plants. I've already mentioned aniseed, and the other one is the infamous, or now infamous, wormwood. The idea is you add wormwood and aniseed to alcohol and you distill it and the product is absinthe. There's a very early recipe in English from 1653 written by Nicholas Culpepper. It's flavoured with these two herbs only. Other absinths might have extra herbs added to them after that first distillation. If you've ever tasted it, you'll know aniseed is the predominant flavour, but it's from the wormwood that it gets its name and notoriety. So let's have a little look at wormwood. Well, it's been used as a medicine by at least the ancient Egyptians. It's thought to be good for getting rid of worms and other parasites from the gut. Its Latin name is Artemisia absinthium, hence the name of the drink. When it comes to Europe, it was drunk in late medieval France and Switzerland as a distillate in alcohol, but it wasn't combined with aniseed until the 17th century. Originally, it's used as a medicine. As many distillates were, spirits and essences were very commonly used. It was considered a basic task for housewives to do, for example. It only really became popular as a drink in itself in the 18th century. Soldiers in the French armies took a lot of it with them for reasons I cannot find out, but anyway, this medicine, the absinthe, they imbibed of it, well, a little bit too much and it caught on as a drink and it also became associated with the army. So suddenly it became the patriotic drink to knock back. In the 1850s, it really became popular because wine prices shot through the roof due to several failed harvests. However, things like eau de vie and other pure spirits were being made from beet sugar so it could be made easily, it could be made cheaply, and it was suddenly accessible to lots of different people. So how was it consumed? Well, there's plenty of tales of folk getting so drunk that they died. Now, this is true, well, and it's also false. It's true of the knockoff absinths that were being made. There was a similar problem going on in Britain with dodgy gin. Now, the way to uh, make some knockoff absinthe and for it to be convincing was you had to make it that bright green colour and what was often used was copper arsenate, so arsenic basically. And like Britain at this time, there was quite a healthy temperance movement and they jumped on this and they tarred all the absence with the same brush, which is very unfair. Now they added to their argument the strength of the stuff, which is typically 55 to 85% alcohol. I've got a bottle of it here and what's mine? 68% alcohol this one, so about average. People weren't just knocking it back neat. At those kind of strengths, you would keel over. Typically, it was drunk diluted with water in proportion to, well, around four or five parts water to one part absinthe. Now, the high alcohol content was there actually for a purpose because it conserved the natural chlorophyll colors from the array of extra plants it was often flavored with. So. Things like fennel, alexanders, brookline, mint, hyssop and lemon balm. If you drop below 55% alcohol, those lovely green colours begin to degrade quite quickly. So it actually had a function, that high alcohol. It wasn't to get very drunk. That was never the intention. But then all eyes moved to wormwood. Now, there's a poisonous chemical called thujone contained within the extract of wormwood. 
If you put wormwood in some alcohol, the alcohol does a pretty good job of extracting it. However, there's that distillation process and that process actually makes the drink safe because thujone does not distill very well. And although a little bit does get through, it is well under dangerous limits. So it's a safe drink, or at least no more or less safe than any other alcoholic drink. But it was singled out successfully as the cause, and it was banned in the early 20th century. Now, the temperance movement probably hoped that this would be the thin end of the wedge and loads of other strong liquors would be banned, but it seems that poor old absinthe was the only one. Some very old bottles of absinthe turn up every now and again, and they are tested. And sure enough, they always have very low amounts of thujone in there. Now, of course, there's also that thing about wormwood being hallucinogenic or psychoactive. This is a total myth. There is no mention of these effects at the time, and the temperance movement would certainly have jumped on that if that really was the case. So what about the infamous green fairy, La Fée Verte? Well, she actually did exist. The idea being that the green fairy is the personification of the intoxication of booze, booze in general, not just absinthe, and the effects it had on those who drank too much of it. The fact the fairy's green is a coincidence? Well, no, not really. It's green because absinthe was a trendy drink, so she was made green to match the absinthe. So if anything, it's just guilt by association. How did absinthe become associated with artists and bohemian culture, particularly during the Belle Epoque era? So the Belle Epoque era, you might have to correct me here, that's that period of time in the like, what, late 19th century, early 20th? So that's right, yeah. England and, or rather, Britain, France weren't at war anymore. They weren't at war with Spain anymore. And we've yet to get to the First World War. So it was that first kind of period of real, I guess we've been living through a similar one over the last few years where, you know, artists really are able to revel and people get a bit more liberal. Yeah. Am I right? Is that It, ends, it good... ends with the First World War. So it's that period of time leading up to the First World War, yeah. starting around kind of... 1870s. As I said, it's got its roots really in the military. Mm. And I think it's because it became a patriotic drink. Makes it kind of ironic that all the Bohemian people were drinking it. But they were drinking it because it was cheap, first of all. And it was, you know, it was decadent and it was liberal times and people really were reveling it. I mean, I remember, you know, reading something about that in, certainly from the English point of view, people couldn't even believe they would there could ever be another war. It could be a bon viveur. <laughs> it was impossible to be somebody like that, you know, in any other point in history. But um, yeah, I think it's kind of ironic that it's it's got its links in in the military, but it ended up being the absolute antithesis to <laughs> a military way of thinking. It was imbibed yeah. by people like Oscar Wilde, Toulouse-Lautrec, Ernest Hemingway, all those great people. Do you think they're to blame for the bad reputation, though, that it's got? Because it strikes me that, I mean, especially you, you read Oscar Wilde's accounts of it. He's mm. in one letter. He talks about seeing uh, someone sweeping up sawdust and he thought flowers were growing. And he says to the waiter, those flowers are amazing. And the waiter's like, but there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, did that actually happen? Or is that just Oscar Wilde having a, a moment or exaggerating? I think it's him being very romantic about the whole thing. Correlation is not causation. I think that um, if you're imbibing in too much spirit of any kind, 
some weird stuff is going to happen. You know, you could say exactly the same of some of maybe Samuel Beckett's writings about going on whiskey binges. So I don't think it's absence fault. I think it's the people drinking too much, but they were drinking too much of everything. So it could have gone on a on a ouzo bender and be writing about the same thing or archers, an archers bender. Hard to imagine archers having quite the same effect, but yeah, that was a wrong, yeah. that was a wrong choice. <laughs> but, but who maybe, knows? Maybe not you, archers. Yeah, but uh, who knows? Lambrini. Oh, I can gosh. see Oscar Wilde with a lambrini <laughs> in his hand. What's the weirdest thing that some? Do you know any stories of like weird things that people have done because they've drunk too much absinthe in particular? I get your point about just it generally being alcohol, isn't it? Like it's mm. not. We can't say that absinthe has special properties, but I, maybe it does take us a little bit further into our delirium. Well, because it is part of the myth, there's very few examples of that actually happening and mm. a lot of them are in retrospect you know the the retelling stories that are quite old that are a bit like a friend of a friend of a friend said this there is one story however in um portelier is this about the guy who c- killed his family yeah in switzerland oh yeah yeah, so well, he, because he was under the effect of well, it's, it's like Neil says, which was retrospective. As I understand it, he he went on a bit of a shooting spree and he killed several members of his family. I'm not entirely sure whether he claimed it was due to the fact he was drunk on absinthe or whether it was he was found to be drunk and then powers that be deduced that he'd been drinking absinthe and then therefore that had caused him to lose his mind mm. and um, go and shoot his family. Yeah, shot his wife and kids. And, and the story that I've heard, I'm sure, it, I think he got embellished as the years got on. He also shot himself in the head. Ooh. But by, when the police came round, because he'd drunk so much absinthe, he was still conscious. Oh, wow. So yeah, there, there are stories and that cannot be true. Because drinking too much of any alcohol isn't going to stop you from being brain dead, surely. Well, not if it's been made properly. I mean, uh, that's the thing we have to remember. This isn't. We're not talking about moonshine here. This was. There was a, a big industry around, I believe, sort of Pontalier in the Jura making absinthe. So it's not like it was a particularly. It wasn't like people were brewing it in their back gardens or in a bathtub, like dodgy gin. <laughs> well, at some point they probably would do because most people had stills in their houses. If you had a bit of money anyway, you know, the housewife was expected to distill things as part of, you know, building up a medicine cabinet. But it wasn't like, yeah, you're right, Sam. It wasn't like rough. It wasn't a rough, like like moonshine. It's a bit... Rough. I mean, it did get rough. It did, know, when yeah. When people but it's started kind of... dyeing it with all sorts of pernicious chemicals like uh, copper arsenate. Copper arsenate, it's got a nice green colour, so people will pop that in there because it was really important they had a good green yeah it's become kind of refined again hasn't it and i just wondered in the modern craft cocktail movement how that kind of influenced the revival of absinthe and do you have any ideas for a modern absinthe based cocktail that would be quite nice to try well you know i mean i've, I've been making a few now and i've got my bottle here which is just short of 70 percent. there is no recipes for cocktails using a shot of absinthe in any of them okay it's a few drops here and there you're essentially using it like bitters oh okay there'll be a recipe and it'll say two drops of absinthe right like an angostura or something like that i get it exactly yeah Uh, corpse reviver number two that's an infamous cocktail by um, harry craddock i think he's got three or four drops 
of, of absinthe in it. There's not very much at all. So it's there just to add a little bit of interest. However, if you want to appreciate some cocktails for the flavor of absinthe, I would maybe suggest an iceberg, which is a double shot of vodka and a teaspoon of absinthe. When absinthe is your mixer, you better watch out. <laughs> <laughs> but that's good because you really get the, the taste, taste of the absinthe. S served on ice, really delicious. If you're a, a martini fan, if you like a dry martini, put a couple of drops of absinthe in there instead of bitters. That makes it a New Orleans dry martini. That's very nice. One of my favourite ones. Oh, and of course, the best one, invented by Ernest Hemingway, half a shot. That's the most I've ever seen in one cocktail. Half a shot of absinthe topped up with champagne. Ooh, fancy. That's called death in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hemingway would know all about that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I say, very apt for Hemingway. Yeah. I was going to say, when is the best time to drink it? I read a... a a quote in um, Aperitif, which was written by Kate Hawkins in um, 2018. And she says of absinthe that it was more fitting to a lost night with consenting adults than something appetising before a meal with less depraved souls. So when would you say is the best time to drink it? So, so I've been drinking a lot of cocktails. Never drink more than three of any cocktail. <laughs> You're going to end up in the same mess. It's a good so advice. I please think, drink yeah. responsibly, folks. So I would say, you know, a martini, a lot of people have a martini before before dinner. So it's definitely an aperitif used in the right way. I mean, if you're going on the lash, yeah, it's got alcohol in it. I don't <laughs> I really don't think there's anything particular about absinthe that uh, apart from the idea itself that we have of it in our culture that makes it in any way more or less some kind of party drink compared to anything else. So you're saying basically if, if someone's drinking absinthe and they think they're going to start seeing green fairies, then they're unlikely to, or they're just as likely to see a green fairy if they drink too much vodka, gin. Exactly. Any exactly. other. Yeah. So, you know, if you do like your cocktails uh, and your spirits, I recommend to give it a go. It's really, really delicious. If you like pastis, if you've ever had pastis, yeah, it's very similar to that, really. That's an interesting take on it, that it's not any different than... Because that's the main thing about absinthe is that it is, it is different. There is something different about it. Mm. And that's it. And it, then you get what's called confirmation bias. Of course. So you go, well, I know somebody who drank of too course. much absinthe and yeah, they got completely so trashed. They had to go to... Well, that's because it happened to them. There were 5,000 people who it didn't happen to. Yeah. <laughs> but you it's, don't hear about them. That's so true. <laughs> it's quite elaborate as well, the way that it's served, the whole sugar on the perforated spoon. And you see quite elaborate spoons, don't you? In Well, well I suppose on eBay and stuff, you're not finding them in your mm. local supermarket. I was going to try and um, have a go at doing that, but uh, I couldn't find any that were kind of cheap. <laughs> No, they're very expensive. I've, yeah. yeah, I had a look on eBay there. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of paraphernalia about it, wasn't there? But I mean, again, I think that's because it was trendy. You could say the same about coffee now. There's so much coffee paraphernalia. I guess it also ties in with that whole Bella Pock thing, doesn't it? Where, it, you know, the, the style, when you see the spoons, they're very ornate and, yeah, ties mm. in with the, the whole period, I guess. Mm -hmm. And of course, it wasn't being dripped through that sugar so you could just drink absinthe flavoured with sugar because that'd still be too strong. You then top it up with water still. It's just people like sugar in everything in the yeah. 19th century. Of course they did. <laughs> Everybody did. So again, all these things that people, you know, we think, oh, they're, they're making it, oh, so they can, they can just about taste it so they can have it as strong as possible without sugar. That's not why they're doing it. They're drinking no. it long and it's just not very sweet. 
because it's got no sugar added to it. It's not a liqueur. Mm. People were very used to drinking sweet wine at this point in history. So it wasn't a sweet drink. So they're obviously going to add some in. That's it. There you go. Right. <laughs> no, it's good. Right. All right, Sam, you're last up. What have you got for us? I'm going to be talking about adulteration in food. Mm, that's quite good. I would never have thought of adulteration. Why did you choose it? Simply because I think we make a big deal of it today. And we're obviously, we have lots of rules and regulations that prevent uh, people fiddling with our food. Mm. And it's interesting to look at how that came about really in the Victorian era and what sort of prompted people to start really considering, you know, whether the stuff they were buying in shops was safe to eat. Mm, excellent. This is going to be really good. So interesting. A is for adulteration. Adulteration, the very word slithers off the tongue and signifies malicious deeds, danger and even death. If you lived in the 18th or early 19th centuries, there was a pretty good chance that the food you were eating was contaminated with some nasty ingredient or pathogen. Bread containing chalk, alum and bone ash to enhance its whiteness. Milk thickened with flour and passed off as cream. Fish gills touched up with red lead to give the impression of freshness. Garish sweets coloured with deadly pigments like lead chromate, more commonly used as a paint. These were just a few of the ruses in play to deceive unwitting and often poorer consumers. As Britain's population migrated from the countryside to the cities for work, they became further removed from the source of their food. If you lived in the country, there was a very good chance that you'd be on first-name terms with the farmer and the cows that produced your milk. So if you had a problem with the quality of the dairy produce, you would know who to blame. By the time milk arrived in a city market in an open vessel, it could have been exposed to dirt and any number of bodily fluids. It may have been diluted with putrid water from sewage-filled rivers and frothed up by the addition of crushed snails, and generally thoroughly unpleasant. The main motivation behind most adulteration was avarice. People simply saw it as a way to make a quick buck and increase their profit. Sometimes this duplicity took place at the point of manufacture, particularly with desirable luxury goods. Expensive coffee was bulked out with other ingredients, the most common of which was ground chicory root. But sometimes the dried ground livers of oxen and horses were used. Perhaps the most common deceit was that involving tea. It was not unusual for servants in large prosperous houses to dry out the tea leaves used by their masters and to sell them on to poorer folk. This of course would still be tea, but a weaker version of it. Perhaps her worst offence was fake tea made from blackthorn leaves. These were dried and coloured green again with copper, making them highly toxic. While it was possible for grocers to be as easily as duped as their customers in terms of receiving dodgy goods, it was quite often the grocers themselves that were responsible for the adulteration or the swindling. One practice involved adding a little bit of water to the bowl of the scale, under the pretext that it would stop things like butter from sticking. Unfortunately, this meant that the customer was only receiving perhaps seven ounces of butter, but paying for eight or nine ounces. Sometimes the adulteration occurred by accident. In 1857, there was a case in Bradford involving some highly toxic sweets. A sweet maker called James Appleton frequently replaced some of the costly sugar in his humbugs with cheap and harmless plaster of Paris. Now, while this is a swindle, it certainly wasn't going to make anyone ill. 
Unfortunately for Mr. Appleton, on one occasion when he purchased his plaster of Paris from his usual apothecary, they mistakenly sold him arsenic trioxide. Unaware that this had occurred, Mr. Appleton proceeded to make his minty sweets, which he then sold on to the rather aptly named street vendor Humbug Billy. Billy was blithely unaware that he was peddling poison. Some 200 people became sick after eating the noxious humbugs, resulting in 20 deaths. Now, interestingly, despite the fact that all of those involved were charged with manslaughter, no conviction was actually made. The problem was that no legislation existed under which people could be prosecuted for adulterating food. Almost 20 years before the Bradford incident, concerns about the dangers of food adulteration had been raised by German chemist and anglophile Friedrich Ackham. Mr. Ackham was a food lover. He didn't like truffles and caviar and the fancy dishes that graced the grand tables of Regency society. He appreciated simple food. Give him some wholemeal sourdough bread with some Westphalia ham and a jug of beer and he was happy as a pig in the proverbial. However, what really made his blood boil was food that had been tampered with. So much so, in 1820, he published a treatise on the adulteration of food and culinary poisons. In his book, he detailed tests that could be conducted to ascertain whether a food contained an adulterant such as copper. Acker had really hoped that his work would inspire the British government to introduce legislation, but unfortunately it would take many more decades before any legislation appeared. By the middle of the 19th century, people were becoming a little more concerned about the food safety and food hygiene. This was helped in part by investigations led by The Lancet and Arthur Hill Hassel. Using his trusty microscope, Hassel tested around 2,500 samples. His test proved that it wasn't just street vendors that were selling dodgy food. Even upmarket grocers like Cross and Blackwell were found to be selling pickles laced with high quantities of copper. Hassel also helped debunk some of the myths surrounding adulteration. There was a popular idea that grocers were mixing sugar with sand. What Hassel actually ascertained in the samples he tested was that there was no sand in the sugar, although he did detect lice. This went some way to explain why some shop assistants suffered from what they called grocer's itch. Hassel therefore recommended that consumers purchase white sugar to be on the safe side. As a result of the likes of Hassel and the Lancet, the British government finally introduced the Food Adulteration Act in 1860. Unfortunately, it was a pretty useless piece of legislation, as it placed the onus on the general public to submit samples of food for testing. There was also some question over exactly what constituted an adulterant. Chocolate manufacturers like Dun & Hewitt were incensed that starches like arrowroot were now considered to be adulterants. They argued that starch was essential in cocoa powder as it helped the cocoa butter naturally present in cacao to mix with liquids like water or milk. It was really important to these chocolate manufacturers that starch not be counted as an adulterant, as many of them, like Cadbury's, marketed their products on the basis of their purity. In 1872, an updated Food Adulteration Act was passed. This would soon be superseded by the Sale of Food and Drugs Act in 1875. This allowed for non-hazardous materials to be included in products, but crucially, they had to be listed on the packaging. New public analysts were also given the power to procure samples at will from grocers and manufacturers. Whether it was the introduction of this legislation or the increased public awareness of the misdeeds perpetrated in the name of food, adulteration had become the exception rather than the norm by the close of the 19th century. Is there a product that, through adulteration, has become a food or a drink item which is accepted as we know 
it today to be kind of a complete product, if that makes sense? Well, I guess it comes back to what you consider to be an adulterant. So if you were Frederick Ackham, who was around, you know, we're talking about 200 years ago, give or take a few years, he was absolutely convinced that food should taste of what it is. It shouldn't be messed about with in any shape or form. So I've got a can of cloudy lemonade here, a uh, very popular brand, and it has got things like citric acid in, which in Ackham's day, he would consider to be an absolute no-no. He would say, no, you can't have that in a drink. Now, what we have to remember is in Ackham's day, they didn't have the packaging that we have now. Manufacturers have to state what's in a drink like this cloudy lemonade. So you, in terms of the trust, the consumer can see what's in there. Whether they understand what is meant by colourings and flavourings is another matter entirely. I guess they, the, the the fact that you need to preserve things for longer as well and all of that kind of packaging side of things is a big influence on how the food or the drink changes in the adulteration process and what we consider it to be, you know, oh, this is adulterated or not. Yeah, definitely. And that's that's the thing, unfortunately, is what we consider to be adulteration. The Sale of Food and Drugs Act, which came in 1875, was supposed to remedy this. So it was allowing manufacturers like the chocolate manufacturers to add starch to their cocoa. So it was a more rounded drink in a way. I mean, otherwise you had the danger of the fat separating from the, the cocoa mass, if you like. That was really uh, sort of helped clarify that. But of course, according to Ackham, that shouldn't have been allowed. He was adamant that everything should be pure. But of course, then food wouldn't keep, as you say, as long as it does now. Because maybe I think we're lowering our standards a bit too much, but then the food is more readily available for a larger portion of the population at the same time. So it's a give and take, I suppose. Yeah. But then, you know, there's the things that are added to preserve foods. And then there are other things that are clearly dangerous. And that's where the date, I think the key difference comes. So both of you have mentioned uh, cyanide, which is found naturally in apple pips. Uh, so you can't really class that as an adulterant in, its, in itself because it is part of the natural thing. But also with the absinthe, we mentioned the colorants that we use to give it that beautiful green hue. Uh, my understanding was with absinthe, if it wasn't brewed to a high level of alcohol, that the color would dim. Yeah, the chlorophyll degrades. Yes. So they were adding the, was it copper sulfate? Copper arsenate. So they were adding copper arsenate to improve the colour. So in improving the colour, it was making the drink toxic. I mean, more yes. toxic than we actually it's, think it's of it. It's quite a slow-working poison. So you don't, you know, you don't, you don't knock back your glass of absinthe, then keel over. It takes months, so you get away with that. So it's not a straightforward poisoning, which no. I guess is why it becomes an adulterant rather than a poisonous adulterant rather than just a an evil poison. And we have to remember that to a certain degree, there was a lack of knowledge, certainly in the 19th century, about how dangerous these things were. So it was quite routine, certainly in the 18th century, to find advice about cooking something copper with your vegetables so that you yeah. had or cooking them in a copper pan. So they were lovely and green, particularly when you were preserving. Mm, especially for peas. Yeah, peas. Yes. Yeah, toxic <laughs> peas. Those are the sorts of things which obviously we don't hear of now. And if we did hear of, we would definitely, you know, the press would be all over it. I think one of the things that surprised me recently was olives. I found out that green olives are sometimes dyed black. No. Yeah, that's what I was, that was my reaction as well. I was like, 
Yes, because you can't you can't take the stone out of a black olive, can you? Because it's too ripe. And it makes a lot of sense now because I don't generally like black olives, or sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. And I've never been able to work out why, but I think basically I don't like green olives that have been dyed black, which makes no sense because I do like quite like green olives. But it's, I think it's a different flavour profile. They can taste so different. Is there something on the packaging that tells us that this is the process that's happened or not? It'll be an e-number, won't it? It'll just be, a, you won't know. And this is the problem. This is, you know, as I said, putting it on the packaging is one thing. Understanding, deciphering it as a consumer is another thing entirely. And I think that's been, that's an age old problem, really, even from if we go back 100 years or 200 years, it's knowing what those ingredients or those e-numbers mean or even sometimes the terms they use it's knowing whether that is actually safe well one assumes if it's being commercially produced that it is safe that is mad i'm flab i'm just speechless right now like i did not know that 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 is really worrying I might need to double check that. I saw this on Instagram or Twitter no, a few months. It is, it's, but it, I was like, oh my God. It was like a eureka moment in a bad way. It was like, that makes so much sense now. But there is a difference between adulteration, obviously, and fake food. Can I ask about bread? Obviously, bread was the most important food, especially, you know, going back to 18th, 19th centuries, 20th centuries. Were bones actually ever used as an adulterant? Because I don't believe it what do you think yeah you see i I've, when you raise the point about them being ground and everything you've you got, got to pay. dry them you got to probably roast them you got to grind them that is more hard work than just putting wheat in <laughs> it is so there's some pretty sensational documents that came out in the 19th century regarding um adulteration this is post Ackham's sort of revelations. One of them, it was anonymously pub- published, which I think speaks volumes, was called Deadly Adulteration and Slow Poisoning. And one of the things the author said was that gin could contain oil of vitriol, which is probably true, that's sulfuric acid, mm-hmm. arsenic and traces of copper. But also he added that it could cause bodies to spontaneously combust, which I think is a bit of an exaggeration. Yeah, that's the problem with propaganda. They always just take it one too far. They keep within the realms of truth and then, pow, you blow up. And I wonder whether the bones is maybe part of that propaganda. I don't I honestly don't know whether they use ground up bones. And I would, you know, it's it's guess it's not beyond the realms of possibility but as you say it's an awful effort to go to to save money i know wheat could be expensive back then but it seems like an awful extreme to go to to eke out your wheat when you're making mm, bread mm. would you consider um the amount of extra water and air added to food these days as an adulterant i think i would i'm thinking of baked beans have you ever had accidentally bought in my case the low sugar low salt baked beans Oh gosh, tell me. They what taste of nothing. <laughs> yeah, so they're putting, they're adding things like the water in there. It just, it just shows. Well, it's normal baked beans, but without as much sugar or salt in it, and it just shows how low quality the ingredients are and how much the water, the stuff down because they're so dependent on the salt and sugar. Yeah. So I, you know, I kind of think, well, is water? It's almost the worst adulterant ever because it's perfectly healthy. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? Again, it comes back to this whole thing, what do you class as an adulterant? Mm. And I think if you put anything into a food stuff that isn't there naturally, it's, and this is yourself taking Atkins stand on it, it Mm. it could be classed as an adulterant. It may not be harmful, 
And you have to remember a lot of the adulterants that Ackham was against weren't necessarily harmful to human health, but they are, I guess, fleecing the customer, aren't they, to an extent? Yeah, Yeah, because the weight of things then varies. I saw a video of how they pump up steaks and meat with raw meat with brine. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, you're paying for a lot more weight, obviously, if you're, if you're yeah, using get that, that water in. Yep. Yeah. Bacon's the big one, isn't it? You know, we buy super, cheap supermarket bacon, you fry a Russia, and 10 minutes later, it's kind of a fifth of the size. <laughs> <laughs> fifth of the size, and you've got all that horrible white gunky oh, yeah, stuff that comes scum. out. Oof. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, very interesting. I mean, again, adulteration could be a whole season, couldn't it? Yeah. It could, yeah. Definitely. Well, that's our first batch out in the pod sphere. That was all right, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I thought it went well. Some interesting things raised. The olives notwithstanding. Now, listeners, I'm sure you all out there have something to add. We couldn't spend a huge amount of time on our subjects. So do you think there's something we've missed out that's very important? Could there be another angle from which we could have viewed our topics? We want to hear from you. Sam, how can people get in contact with us? Because I have trouble remembering anything. So we have our podcast and newsletter on Substack, which is the Mm -hmm. best way to contact us. And there is a chat function in there. So if you want to pop your ideas in the chat function or start a chat, that would be a great way to get hold of us. Excellent. You can also do it the old-fashioned way and email us, a is for applepod at gmail.com. And also you can contact us, of course, through social media. We're on Instagram, a is for apple underscore. And we're on X or Twitter, whatever we're calling it these days, mm-hmm. uh, a is for apple pod. But you can find all the links to our social media and emails and Substack on our link tree, which you can find in the show notes. Fabulous. In fact, Sam, I'm handing the button over to you for the next episode. Have you got a a topic for us? Well, I think we should look at aromatics purely from a selfish point of view, because I've written books on spices. Uh, So I I do have something of a vested interest. Okay. So aromatics which conveniently does begin with a but i want you to think of things aromatic that begin mm. with a so it's like herbs spices that's all yeah stuff. yeah okay exactly hmm. Hmm. ali do you reckon you're all right with that i'm already thinking listeners do you have a topic of choice that we could choose for a future episode or an a that you'd like us to cover in the final episode of the season it's going to be listeners choice so all of you lot are going to be in charge of that last one, which will be exciting. I wonder what people are going to send. I expect several curveballs. Nothing wrong with the curveball. No, indeed. We can handle that. Can we? We shall find out. <laughs> well, indeed. It might be a complete shuffle. <laughs> so there's nothing else to say, I suppose, except for cheerio. See you next time. See you soon. Yep. See you soon. <laughs>